Welcome to the Columbia Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We're so excited to share this weekend's message with you from Dr. Jim Baucom, our senior pastor. We hope it encourages you, inspires you, and helps you grow in your faith as a whole life disciple. Now, enjoy the message. Man, I'm, I'm grateful for chocolate donuts with Boston cream in them too. That's one of my very favorite things. And I'm grateful for the book of Philippians, which I'm finding is just filled with this incredible content for this moment. Like I'm tempted to think that Paul wrote this just for me, except for how many of you are telling me what this book is meaning to you in this moment as well. And it just struck me that this, in my just normal devotional reading, that this book was just written in a moment, for a moment, exactly like this. Last week, I talked to you about option overload, or what we call the choice paradox, which is when you have too many choices, too many options, that uh, you tend to become discouraged, not happier. Uh, and this week, I want to I take that one step further and talk about something you probably know about. We sometimes call this FOMO, or the fear of missing out. It's dramatically amplified in our day and time by social media, which convinces everybody that everyone else is having a better life than they are, if not a better night than they are. I mean, we're always positive, and we, we, it never occurs to us that everybody's working really hard to present the very best image of themselves when they write on social media, because FOMO really is a social phenomenon. It's when we feel socially left out, but we can carry it further and talk about other ways in which we feel like we're falling behind or or left out. So around here, we could talk about the belief that everybody has to go to an Ivy League college or something of that variety and talk about FOMO. A lot of economists say that FOMO is driving the stock market right now. I mean, ridiculous multiples, 22 to 40 times forward earnings. That's a crazy, crazy valuation for a stock. Absolutely insane. But people are afraid of missing out, and so they're chasing the dream. (laughs) So, you know, I'm just like everybody else. I'm sometimes afraid I'm missing out. Are you? So if you're at home, raise your hand. If you're here, raise your hand. You're afraid of missing out. All right, so you agree with me. But what I want to talk about here is what somebody has uh, sort of creatively called, and I like this, hashtag FOMO, F-O-M-O-M-G, which is the fear on missing out of my goals. So let's talk about the fear of missing out on your goals. Now, I I can't speak for your family. I was reared in a high-expectation family. I'm positive that most Washingtonians agree with me on this. This is what makes us so type A. This is what makes us so insane around here, is we were reared in these high-expectation homes. And, and that's sometimes a really good thing. So, for example, I was basically taught that if I applied myself and made the right decisions, I could do anything I wanted to. There was no limit to what I could accomplish. And that did engender a certain sense of, of confidence, if you will, in, in what I could be and what I could do. Now, the problem is that that also created for me a very high expectation of what I should accomplish and what life should be. So I have walked through life constantly battling a notion that I should have done more, should have been more, should have accomplished more, something should have been different in my life, and if it's not, then if you're reared in a high-expectation home, it must somehow be my fault. So 
I battle this all the time. I'm just going to tell you, this is a voice that talks in the back of my head constantly. I dream crazy dreams about this. I think about it all the time, and I'm just going to bet that a whole lot of you identify with me on this. And I'm also going to tell you that the closest I've ever come on a couple of occasions to sabotaging my life was because of this thought about what life should produce for me. These incredibly high expectations that couldn't possibly be realized or met. I mean, my expectations often are so high that they can't possibly be realized. Now, maybe this is you too. So I plan something. Let's say it's the perfect date with Debbie or the perfect getaway or the perfect family Thanksgiving get-together or the perfect Christmas or the perfect whatever. Never is it ever possible that what will actually occur would live up to my expectations. So I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight walking through this every minute and going, you know, what should be happening right now instead of enjoying and appreciating and be grateful for what is happening right now. And when it's all over, I'm going to have this nagging fear that it could have been better and the reason it wasn't is because of me. It's somehow my fault. Anybody else out there like this? I just want to know if, if I'm the only one that experiences this F-O-M-O-M-G, this sense that my, my goals and dreams and visions are not being realized. Now, this is something that Paul must have fought to. You ha- if you read Paul for any length of time, you got to know he's as type A as any Washingtonian ever was. In fact, I had someone recently tell me, I'm enjoying the book of Philippians, but I don't really like Paul. That's okay, by the way. That's all right. Don't say that about Jesus if you don't mind. But Paul, it's okay. You can like him. You can lump him. It doesn't make any difference. I don't really like Paul. What don't you like about Paul? The way he speaks with such finitude, exactitude. That's his, his fair sake past. His, his upbringing in this very strict environment, his incredible Ivy League-like education, unlike any of the other writers of the New Testament, Paul must have had unbelievable expectations for life and for himself. So if anyone fought this and worked hard to become grateful for whatever God provided, I got to figure it was the Apostle Paul. So two things give Philippians credibility for me. Besides the fact I I think it is the word of God given to the church. And one of them is that the Apostle Paul is in such difficult places, circumstances, as he writes some of his letters and particularly Philippians. So I talked to you about that a couple of weeks ago. But the other one is that I know Paul must have fought this expectation about what life should deliver and how Some things just didn't add up or stack up or equal what he expected in life. And therefore, that he must have struggled sometimes with this F-O-M-O-M-G, this fear of missing out on his goals. Now look, there's nothing wrong with having aspirations. There's nothing wrong with wanting a little more and working for a little more in yourself, in your capacity, your, your capability to do something. But at the end of the day, I have become absolutely convinced that most people are made very unhappy by their unrealistic expectations of what life should deliver for them, especially in a nation like the United States of America, in the North America of our day and time. I'm positive. So, so I deal with couples all the time, maybe on counseling, and what I find is that their problem is not what the marriage actually is, but 
that it didn't live up to one of their or both of their expectations about what it should be. So you've got to first suss out what's appropriate about those expectations and then ask, how do you live into what's appropriate? Reasonable. What's reasonable here? What can you really expect? On a daily basis, I talk to somebody who's disappointed with their career. Now, you understand many people I'm talking to are incredibly successful. By the world's standards, they're amazingly successful. But they'll say to me, I really thought I would climb higher. I I would do more. I'd have more influence, whatever the case may be. Sometimes I'm talking to my own daughters about this kind of thing. And I'm having to say to them, what exactly did you expect life to deliver? Now, this is what you have to be careful about because I'm bad about this, of giving. Like, look, listen, I'm older than you. Trust me on this. At some point, you just have to be grateful for the opportunities that God has given to you and grateful that they are so much more, so much more vast than probably you could have reasonably expected and than much of the world experiences. Now, Paul addresses this today, and I think he's going to help us a lot. But before we get to the section I'm going to deal with, I want once again in every one of these sermons, I want to deal with Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7 and 12b through 14. I told you this is the experiential lens through which I'm choosing to see this book. I'm going to show you in a little while another lens you could use, and maybe it's your preferred lens. But this one for me right now, this is the section that just just gets me, just grabs me by the heart. Paul writes again, and you should have it memorized by now, rejoice in the Lord always. And I'll say it again, rejoice. Now, I want to pick up on this passage again in a moment, so pay attention to it. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving. Eucharisteo, gratitude in the midst of all situations. Thanks no matter what. Present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, I love how Paul says this. I've pointed this out every week, but I have learned the secret. This is is the makings of a best-selling book. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Now, let's think about that secret for a moment because what would keep this from becoming a best-selling self-help book is that if Paul were writing a best-selling self-help book, he would say, I have learned the secret to accomplish anything. I've learned the secret to recognizing And realizing all my goals and dreams, I've learned the secret to being successful. I've learned the secret to being rich. That would make a good book. But instead, what Paul says is, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. And that's one that's not going to jump off the shelf. But it should. Because that's the key is to regard whatever we have, whatever God has given us as abundance and to be grateful for it in all situations. Now let me review a few things I've said, but very quickly so I can get to what I want to get at. 
First of all, I've suggested to you that fear produces anxiety, anger, depression, etc. So we're seeing those in spades right now. And I'm also suggesting to you that we have one freedom always, no matter what, and that is to choose our emotional response. Maybe not our first blush or first reaction, but to think it through and to change our ideas, notions, and even feelings about certain things. Anger is an emotion that we don't choose. It just hits us. Anger is a defense mechanism. It's something we surround ourselves with while gratitude is a coping skill. It is something we have to discipline ourselves to do and something we learn to do over time. So gratitude looks backward and looks forward. Looks backward to see what God has given and looks forward with hope to what God has promised in order to find joy right now. So gratitude really is about living in the moment. And the secret is joy that is grounded in thanksgiving. And that joy comes from Christ himself. Now let me pick up on this little parenthetical thing. If you're like, maybe you're not like me, but I read very analytically. So when I'm reading a section, sometimes something will stop me. It can stop me for two reasons. One reason it can stop stop me is because it's so profound. So you just stop and go, oh, wow. So I was reading, again, the parable of the return of the prodigal son uh, by Nowen, and I quoted that last week. And when I went back and reread that passage, I remembered it actually from seminary, which is a long time ago, and picked it back up and found that passage and read it. I just laid it on the table in front of me and went, wow, that's just powerful. And sometimes reading through Philippians, you know, I'll I'll hit a passage and just go, wow. But the other thing that catches me is if something either seems A, out of place, or B, extraneous. It just doesn't make any sense that it's there. And so when I was reading Philippians 4 this time, I started wondering about this sentence, let your gentleness be evident to all the Lord is near, and thinking, that's a throwaway sentence. Uh, Paul, you need to understand something about Paul. In all the New Testament, Paul writes the most eloquent, elegant classical Greek of any writer, which is what makes him so hard to translate. You never start in Greek class translating Paul's letters. You start with 1 John often. Definitely not Paul, because Paul writes these long run-on paragraphs, and his vocabulary is enormous. It's huge. So he uses words like what I'm about to point out that you don't find anywhere else in the New Testament. And so Paul's constantly just, just weaving this really complex tapestry, and it makes him sometimes hard to read. But he's very intentional. So anything that's there is carefully thought out. So I'm reading this section, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice Now, if he went straight to the next thing and said, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, I'd be good. But instead, he throws in this little, almost in parenthesis, it seems to me, oh, by the way, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. What's this about, Paul? So I go back to the Greek and say, Paul, what are you really trying to say here? What are you trying to tell me? Why is this sentence At the beginning of this conclusive section of your book, why is it so significant? Why do I need to pay attention to it? And what I discover is a rather interesting word. It's epiakis. And so epiakis, it's translated gentleness in the NIV. In the King James Version, it's, it's translated moderation. So let your moderation be evident to all. But the real The real word, the real meaning of the word is reasonableness or appropriateness. 
So that leaves the author having to trying to figure out, or rather the translator, having to try to figure out what was the author saying here? What is he trying to convey? And I don't think gentleness gets it. Now, with all regard to great translators, because the NIV is a magnificent translation, I think they miss it on this one. I think the King James comes a lot closer. Let your moderation be evident to all. But the problem is the word moderation has changed since the 1600s. So once upon a time, moderation meant your capacity to moderate yourself according to the circumstance. So if passion or emotion is appropriate in the moment, that's what you display. But if calm is appropriate in the moment, then that's what you display. Parents, you know this, how you have to modulate yourself sometimes? Moderation now doesn't mean that, does it? It means like standing in the middle, like standing for nothing or, or restric- restraining yourself in all situations. So I think that's why the NIV does not use that word. But reasonableness comes a lot closer. So when we take a look at that word, what is Paul really trying to say? He's trying to say, I have learned to examine the landscape in any given moment and to give a reasonable response knowing that the Lord is near. So the question always is, what is the reasonable response right now in Jesus' name? What would honor him? What would glorify him? What would Jesus do in the way sometimes people say it? So we're thinking carefully, what is the reasonable response in this moment? And when I think about my expectations, which are unreasonable so often, the question is, what should I really expect for life to deliver? What should I really anticipate from God? And what should I be grateful for in this moment? What are my three things as I sit down to my journal right now? Now, this helps me. This helps me a lot. It's not just a matter of being gentle. It's a matter of being able to survey the situation and respond appropriately according to the reality that Jesus is near, that the Lord is near. The second piece I want to point out today goes with this to me, and so that's when Paul says in verse 12, I've learned the secret, and in 13, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Now, because this is so different than the King James Version, how many emails do you think I'm getting about this one? good friend of mine texted me after the worship service last Sunday and said, hey, you know, I'm bugged by this because I don't like the way the NIV says this verse. Can you help me? What does the Greek actually say? So let's look at the KJV because you memorized it like this, right? Didn't you? I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Now the thing is, as a standalone memory verse, that one's awesome, isn't it? I mean, I can do anything through Jesus, But let's analyze that in two ways. First of all, is that actually true? See, what I was reared to believe is not true. I cannot accomplish anything. First of all, I do not have the skills and gifts to accomplish some things. While I played around in the Mediator series, I just want to tell you in case you didn't know, I can't really fly, but I'd like to. So so I could say, look, through Christ I can fly. No, no. He doesn't give me that capacity, so apparently I don't need that capacity. So I'm not sure that the KJV memory verse really helps us much. It puffs us up as North American types, type A's, and says to us we should be able to do anything because of Jesus. That's not what the Apostle Paul was saying. Here's my translation of the Greek. So this is the Dr. J version. In all things I have endurance in the one who is empowering me. That's the literal 
wooden translation of the Greek of this passage. In all things I have endurance in the one who is empowering me. In fact, I think the NIV may not capture it really well, but it seems to me that some other translations do. But think about the difference in this. I'm, real, I'm not really saying I can do anything. I'm saying that God has given me the capacity to do whatever is necessary and appropriate in the moment to honor him. That's really different, isn't it? He's given me the capacity to endure this moment. My grandmother used to have this plaque in her window, and it was a great plaque, and it said this. It said, Lord, help me to remember that nothing is going to happen today that you and I can't handle together. That's what this verse says. It says, Lord, whatever comes my way, quarantines, pandemics, Death of loved ones, my death, my illness, loss of income, whatever comes my way. Lord, you and I together can handle this. We can take care of it. You will give me strength for that moment, and I will be able to do in any situation whatever is necessary. And yes, therefore, I will rejoice and be grateful. Really different. Really different. Let's jump into the text of the day. So I told you there were two ways to see this scripture, and I'm using one of them. I'm using the experiential lens of Philippians chapter 4. But if I were teaching a seminary course, this is probably where I would begin. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So Philippians 2 for Paul is like a theological wall on which he hangs portraits, about five of them. So what he does is he builds this backdrop, and then he hangs these pictures of himself, of the church, and its faithfulness, all these pictures revolve around the center of the book, and the center of the book is the example and the picture of Jesus. So this is the theological lens through which you can view Philippians if you'd like to, and it will make a lot of sense to you if you'll do that. But I I do love this scripture. It is really incredible. Let me tell you something cool before I read it. I really should sing it, but I don't know the verse. I don't know how it sounds. And the reason I should sing it is because verses 5 through 11, most New Testament scholars believe are confident was an ancient hymn of the church. And they believe that for two reasons. One of them is that Paul renders it in verse. So I told you he's very proper when he writes. So it's, it's in verse, or he told Timothy to render it in verse. So he gives us a clue. But the second reason is because it so carefully captures the charisma or core teaching of the church. Now I've taught you this many times, but the challenge of the early church was not to convince people that a man could be divine. In Jesus' day, in the ancient day, that was easily believed. The challenge was to convince people that God could become human, that there was such a thing as the incarnation. So this section is a beautiful hymn that the early church sang. I wonder, you know, if Paul down in his prison cell sang it to Timothy and Timothy then wrote it down, sang it back, and then it gets to the church at Philippi and as people read it, they sing it. You know how a preacher will do this, like use Amazing Grace or something that everybody knows because because we learn a lot of our theology right and wrong through song. So I really should sing it, but I don't know what it sounds like, so, so I won't, and I'll spare you that anyway. So therefore, Paul writes, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. 
In fact, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Here's the hymn. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Now, all of you love this verse, don't you? That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge or confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, let's talk about a few points that are contained within this beautiful section, this beautiful hymn. So first of all, let's talk about how Paul's joy is completed. And my suggestion to you is that our joy is completed in the church. Now, I've learned something in this time. I don't know about you. I've learned something. And one of the things I've learned is that while my joy is rooted with Christ, it finds its flower in the church. So its seed in the ground is the presence of Christ. Don't get me wrong, and that's always with me. But it tends to flower in the life of the church. So when I'm not around a lot of people and hearing their stories of what God is doing and seeing what God is up to in the life of the church, I tend to sometimes forget how powerful God really is. Do you? Happens to me all the time. I'm really missing the church in its fullness, I had somebody call me recently and say, I'll be in worship. Actually, they're here today. I'm going to be in worship because the reason is because I'm telling you, my life's not going so well without worship. I said to them, why is that? And they said, I don't know. Everything was okay to me at first. I I kind of said, this is kind of nice. Eating my chocolate donuts and watching the television, sort of nice in my bathrobe. But now what I'm finding is something's missing, and what's missing is my joy is lower. And the reason is not because of where it's planted. I know this person's rooted in Christ. I know that. It's that they're not bringing it to flower. It's not being fertilized in the church. So the apostle Paul tells us that only the church has the capacity to complete his joy. Now listen to this. It's kind of cool. He doesn't say make me joyful. He says complete my joy. Make it full. So here's what he says. He says, therefore, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing of the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same agape, love of Christ, being one in spirit. Now, what Paul does not mean is that we in the church should agree about everything. He does not mean that. He doesn't mean we should have the same political perspective. He does not mean that we should agree on exactly the tactics or strategy that we should employ. He does not mean that we should agree on every issue. He means we should have together the mind of Christ that's rooted in self-giving service, agape, the love of Jesus. That's what he means. But man, I I know Paul's a preacher here because sometimes I want to preach this sermon. Like once in a while, I want to say to the church, don't you have any encouragement? Don't you have any encouragement from being united with Christ? Don't you have any comfort? I love the way he says this. In his love, don't you have any common sharing in the spirit? Is there no tenderness and compassion? Paul said, if you have a shred, a modicum, just a little of this, that will be enough for you to make my joy complete by loving each other 
with a Christ-like love and by loving the world that God created with a Christ-like love. It's a pretty amazing thing to say. It really is. The second thing I point out here is that gratitude produces humility. this, This is important because in the way that our nation is often grateful, gratitude produces pride. Think carefully about this. So when you do your Thanksgiving list, I don't know if you guys do this, but in my house, we always gather around the table and everybody says one thing they're really grateful for. And it's the same list every time. You know, we're thankful for family. Our family's just awesome. We're thankful for that. We're thankful for our, everybody's, somebody's always thankful for our nation. It's the greatest nation on earth, so grateful for it. I, I believe that too, but you know, love it. I love, just love it. When the flag flies, I just cry. Somebody says, that and somebody else says something else and so you know you go it's the same list we should just write it down one year put it up and say there it is let's eat when you do the gratitude journal you get beyond that stuff and you start to realize that you're receiving benefit you're not entitled to and when you start recognizing that it's humbling it doesn't make you more proud thanksgiving shouldn't be an expression of our pride It should be an expression of our humility before God because we deserve none of it. We don't even deserve life, breath, much less salvation. The apostle Paul's in prison and he's lost his momentary liberty or freedom, but he's able to be grateful because of his eternal deliverance as I talked about last week. And so he focuses on the right things and gratitude makes us focus on the right things and then be grateful for the ways in which God is accomplishing those things. Does it make sense? It's kind of a clear thing, actually, once you begin to see what Paul is saying. But let's take a look at the way he says this. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And then he comes down and gives the example of Jesus. And I want to focus on the center of that example, which is verse 7, because the crux of this is understanding what is meant by verse 7. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Now again, I wondered, I wondered about the Greek here. And the reason I wondered about the Greek is I struggle with what humility means. Now maybe it's just because I'm not humble enough. But I struggle a little with what humility means because there is a worldly kind of picture of humility that says it means me essentially stooping down or, or dampening down my personal conviction or my confidence or capacity to lead. It, it sometimes, sometimes we say, we'll say somebody, he's really humble, which usually means that person is really quiet. Do you guys know me very well? I'm not going to be very quiet the day I die. It's not going to happen. It's not me. So I wonder about this meaning of, is, is this really what Jesus did? Did he make himself nothing? Is that really what the scripture is saying? He made himself absolutely nothing. That's kind of hard for me to believe about Jesus. How about you? Made himself nothing. Is that really what the Greek says? Well, I'm going to tell you something. It's not. So this is the intriguing thing again here, and I hate to point this out, but when you read the Greek, right in the middle of it is the word echinosin. Echinosin is a really intriguing word. It's a fascinating word. So, huton, echinosin, morphine, uh, dulo, um, uh, labon, uh, labon. That's the Greek passage. So, when you look at the Greek, the question is, what exactly does that mean? So, echinosin. The word echinosin means to empty, means to pour out, literally to pour something out until it's empty. So 
There's a significant difference to me in making myself nothing and pouring myself out. How about you? Let's, let's give this some thought. In fact, by the way, this is so important that New Testament scholars and teachers often call it the canonic hymn, the emptying hymn. So the notion is Jesus emptied himself of something. And some people said, well, what he emptied himself is of is is of divinity but that's not true because the bible says jesus was fully human but also fully god so he did not empty himself of divinity what did he empty himself of and the answer is self-interest it's ego so humility is not lowering yourself so that you're nothing it's not licking people's boots. It's not that. It is putting yourself in the service of others. Whatever gifts God has given you, that you regard them as valuable because of the difference they can make for others, for the world, and for Christ, and not for what they can get for you. And that means emptying yourself, pouring out your ego so that you can receive the Spirit of God. So in this case, I don't like the way the NIV renders it or the KJV for that matter, but I do like the way that it really literally reads. This is the Dr. J version. This is my literal translation. Himself emptied the form of a servant having taken. Now that's wooden. That's why it's not written in the Bible this way because if you had to read like this all the time, you'd go nuts. But this is the way the Greek reads. Himself emptied the form of a servant having taken. I rather like the way the New American Standard Bible renders it. By the way, when you're studying the Bible, The NASB is a great parallel to use because it's very hard to read because it's very wooden, but it's often word for word very accurate. Sometimes it misses the forest for the trees because the idea is not conveyed. But the words are usually right. So the NASB says this, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Now does that teach us anything about what real humility is? You remember I told you at the beginning about my expectations of myself and my expectations for what the world ought to deliver for me? You remember that? And then let's put into that also my expectations for others. Because what tends to happen is my high expectations of myself and life tend to cause me to expect too much of other people sometimes. And boy, my wife and daughters can really tell you about this one. My daughters especially. Because see, here's what we try to do. Here's what happens. Life didn't equal what it was supposed to be for us, but doggone it, that's not going to happen for our kids. They're going to get it all. No, they're not. They're going to live a life just like yours in which they have expectations that are too high and impossible to realize. Because that's what you give them. That's your gift. It's your spiritual gift. Or at least it is mine. So let's put that into that box too. And what I have to do is to empty out all those expectations and say, Lord, I put them at your feet. You give me whatever you think is best for me. You use me in whichever way is best for your kingdom and your glory And I will receive whatever you give me as bounty. I will receive it with gratitude. So gratitude makes me humble because it causes me to say, Lord, whatever I have today, that's the best there is for me because that's what you chose for me. Even if it's struggle, even if it's pain, this is the day you chose for me because you're forming me for eternity. I know this is hard to do. And the reason I know it's hard to do is because it's hard for me to do. But the key is obedience. So note what is said about Jesus in this passage. He humbled himself, having emptied himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient 
to death. So what made Jesus so unique was that he never failed to be obedient. I'm I'm not like that. Just going to tell you, you're not either. Jesus was. In every situation, he was obedient to the will of the Father. Within the Trinity, there is perfect symmetry. There's never one time that the Son or the Holy Spirit do anything that's out of concert with the strategic plan of the Father. And so at the end of the day, it's Jesus' obedience that is the best model. Now remember, put it all together. This is a puzzle. Being appropriate in every situation. The Lord is near, right? Pouring out your ego. Pouring out your expectations. Becoming humbled and being obedient in every given moment to what is best for the glory of God, what is best for the good of the Father in my life, in my family, in my church, in my city, in my nation, my world. I'm seeking on earth as it is in heaven. I'm seeking what is best for God's will, and therefore my joy comes from watching God do his thing. He's got it. Whatever the situation, he's got it covered. It's so cool to me how Paul talks about this. And finally, let me tell you that the mindset he's talking about in Christ, we may very easily label gratitude. Jesus never once worried about whether the day was living up to his expectations. Not one time did Jesus ever go, I should have been a something else. He was exactly what God asked him to be at every turn, even going to the cross. And even then, when he didn't want it, remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, but not my will, but yours. In every situation, Jesus' mindset is to be grateful for what God is doing in the moment. The discipline of gratitude shifts our attention away from us and to what God is up to. Gratitude focuses on God's glory. And so we are able with Paul to say this, therefore God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge or confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, and that is the part of the hymn we're going to be singing for eternity. You know that, right? And so gratitude gets us ahead of the game. It gets us into a heavenly mindset while we're still walking in the physical earth. It makes us grateful for the moment, live in the moment, be confident in the moment. It helps us to pour out these ridiculous expectations. It's fine. It's fine for you to want something and go after it. It's fine. But when those expectations cause you to despair because the world is not delivering for you what you think it should, you're not able to say this. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Gratitude takes you there. That's what gratitude does. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you in this moment for the discipline of gratitude and for the opportunity of seeing your hand in all things if I open my spiritual eyes. And I pray, Lord, that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would enable my brothers and sisters and me to be grateful for whatever you give us in any given moment. Here's what we expect. We change our expectations. We expect, Lord, that you will be glorified. We expect to worship and honor and praise you forever, and we expect that whatever you give 
is the best there is for us today, tomorrow, and always. Father, fit us for heaven. Make us creatures who can praise you forever because we are grateful in the moment. And may the world see us and marvel at our peace, our contentment, and our joy. And Father, may we make that joy complete in the church. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, friends, show me this week how you can empty yourself in order to be fully completed by God. You go and ignite passion for Jesus Christ from Metro Washington to the world. I love you. I'm praying for you. I miss you. Have a great week. We'll see you soon. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Metro D.C. or Northern Virginia area, we would love to worship with you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about all the incredible things happening at Columbia, go to columbiabaptist.org. That's columbiabaptist.org.